You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall in New York City. And me, Charles Foley in Minneapolis. Now, John, this has been a big month for you because the new Mammal Watching website has gone up. Um, it, it looks great. So many congratulations. And well, I couldn't have done it without you, Charles. So congratulations to us both, I think. Um, yeah, I'm really pleased. It took a bit longer and a bit more complex than I think what, what I'd hoped, what we'd all hoped. But um, it is up. Um, for people who haven't seen it, I'm sorry, the notifications aren't working yet, but that will be the next thing. So there have been some new reports already. People are finding it. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll be there's still plenty of things to do. But uh, yeah, what, what do you think of it, honestly, Charles? Well, the, the pictures are great. That's the first thing that absolutely captures you um, when you first open it. And I'm still getting used to the new format. Um, so, and I know that there are a number of links which are still in process. So, for instance, eventually there will be the ability for people to upload their primate lists, for instance. And that is coming. It's in the works. And... Um, I know that there are certain pages are also going to be updated with mammal watching guidelines and uh, carbon offsetting, et cetera. So all of those are are in the works and will be coming. But uh, yeah, I, I, I love it. I think it looks great. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah, I, I'm very pleased that the web designers have done a really nice job in making it look very cool. Even Katie, my daughter, was impressed. I think she said, wow, that's so cool, and signed up for updates, which she's never done before. So um, having said that, she's a big nerd, and the podcast is one of her favorite shows, so her judgment might be slightly clouded. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the, the motivation behind this was A, behind the, the rebuild was A, to, to build a more modern site that worked. The other one was crashing. And anyone who's tried to upload trip reports will know they couldn't. It was very frustrating all the trip reports were sent to me to upload. So that's all going to change. People will up, be uploading their own reports now, which I hope, I hope will make it feel more like a community. Um, second, there was really promoting more of the con conservation aspect of mammal watching, making it easier for us not just to mammal watch, but to mammal watch responsibly and to help, help conservation with everything we do. So there'll be more emphasis on guidelines, on offsetting carbon emissions. There'll be a place with recommended projects that people can donate to if they're looking to to give something back directly um all of the things we talked about in spain at the mammal watching meeting with felis will slowly be implementing those and then the last thing is is this idea of league tables and we'll begin with primates um that people can there'll be a, there'll be a standard list that we'll ask people to use they'll come up with their own totals and they'll be in a league table and we hope that will help you know foster some some healthy competition and some some debate and conversation um, so people can look at what other people have seen and get ideas and then we can expand that i think to whales and dolphins and to cats because we know there are people who go out there specifically to collect those those sets of mammals um, one day perhaps we'll do all mammals that's maybe more complicated because of the size of the list but i think there's lots lots of lots already there and lots to come but if people have got ideas and other things we can do things they find confusing links that are broken please do send them through um it's really useful to get any feedback on what's what's good and what isn't so we can keep 
keep adjusting and, and learning as we go. Yeah. And you can also see now um, how many people have actually read your trip reports and that sort of thing so that people know how what, what sort of audience are they reaching when they when they publish a trip report. Yeah, that and- that's um actually that's been one of the biggest surprises because all the counters were set to zero when the um the site went live just a week ago. And I've been obviously playing around and looking at things and even really obscure pages that I wouldn't think anyone would looked at are getting a, have had a hundred or two hundred views already. Hmm. So um it's extraordinary how much traffic it seems to be getting. So yeah, I think it's that's that's been a really pleasant surprise because we didn't have that ability before. So yeah. I'm I'm fired up about how many people look at it for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And I should also I just mentioned to the audience that the, the site um, has an inbuilt mechanism which uh, makes it crash if uh, John gets knocked off his perch as a <laughs> one mammal watcher. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, a team of heavies will come over to your house and kneecap you if that happens. <laughs> be warned. I'm, I don't know if you saw that. that you, I know you did because you commented, but there's also I'm sharing. I share quite a bit to Facebook, but I know not everyone's on Facebook. So some of those links are appearing in the site that's not working perfectly yet um some things come through nicely others don't but the bush dog video yes um did you oh my word that's just gone no <laughs> it's incredible it a bush dog um catching a pakarana and then two more bush dogs come and basically help drag this animal away and it was filmed by someone on foot yeah, with a cell phone. It's a, a, yeah, a packer. And it's someone commented. Well, oh, so it was a, it was a, packer, a packer, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah not a packer. A packer on that would yeah, be that too. That would be too. <laughs> I think I just die and curl up if that happened. Um, but yeah, it's it someone commented it's the first ever documented um film of a of a bush dog predation, which I don't know if it's true, but it sounded like it might be. And the I showed it to my pet dog and she was quite impressed when when she watched the video and heard them. But uh, oh my word, they're such great animals. I have to say, Okapi at number one now is definitely in jeopardy of getting to number two as my most wanted mammal <laughs> after seeing those bush dogs. Oh, yeah. and they just didn't care. That guy was walking up to them. They were too busy eating. Right. Um, do, do we know anything about the provenance of, of no, the video? No, uh, I, I was trying to figure out the accent or the language. It, I, I, my guess was Pantanal, but someone who the person who originally put it up said it wasn't the Pantanal. I don't know how he knows, and I don't know where he got the video from. Right. Um, but um, I'm waiting to find out. So if anyone is an expert in um, South American dialects or languages, please take a look at this video on the Facebook Mama Watching page and let us know what language they're speaking and where it might be. Because <laughs> right. it's, it's like the best video I've seen for a long time. I'm yeah, and, with it. yeah. And ultimately, um, any of those really interesting uh, snippets will will stream automatically onto the the website, yeah, and which is great. So at the moment, as you say, not not all the links are are working, um, but the one that really caught my eye was the one that you actually posted on um, on the mammal watching um, Facebook account about yeah. the Tasmanian devil, oh, yeah. which someone at Toledo Zoo. Um, got this or switched on a uv torch and tasmanian devils shine under uv light right and the picture i can't start looking at it it's got it's got two two little like purple eyes purple ears and purple teeth in fact it looks 
downright evil to be honest but it's just astonishing and um so i've been in touch with rob shoemaker from the indianapolis zoo who obviously was was a guest on on the podcast not too long ago and he has now acquired a uv flashlight <laughs> and he, he promises that he's going to spend every lunchtime going around <laughs> shining this thing at, at any animal he has in his exhibit and seeing if by chance any any other species uh, out there do the same thing so it's just so great i find it so fascinating it is, it? yeah we'll do that what yeah. a great job i mean i, I was just going to say Someone is obviously going around shining lights on these things, but there must be thousands of species that no one's shot a UV light at yet. I know. So, um, I know. yeah, what a great thing to do, sneak going to a zoo at night. That, that could be like an evenings. Can they let kids have birthday parties in zoos? They could give them all UV lights and see see if you can make <laughs> a new discovery for science. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so let, let them loose in a museum and then with oh, yeah. animal skins, etc. So yeah, does it uh, work on skins or is it do it we does. know if it's just like mm, oh really? Yeah, it does. So for instance, with the uh um with the spring hairs, that was I think I Actually, I'm, I'm not 100% sure if that's how it was actually discovered, yeah. but I know that someone did then go and uh, certainly replicate it uh, in a museum. And, and they, they're they fantastic. Someone sent us a photo of one the other day and taken a, a spring hair at night. This thing was just violet green. It's wow. just astonishing color. So, yeah. yeah, you just, again, why? And I know you're off to Tanzania very soon. Are you taking your UV light in search of spring hairs? <laughs> well, I, I'll probably take my UV light um, on top of the 100 kilos of other luggage that I'm yeah. supposed to haul out over there. But uh, we'll see. <laughs> but, uh, it'll probably be added to, 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 to the packing list. <laughs> but speaking of travels, um, you, of course, have just come back from Equatorial Guinea. And this is... So almost a bit of a mythical country in that it's extremely difficult to get into. Hardly anyone ever goes there. So I thought it'd be interesting to quiz you a little bit on your trip and see how it went. So I know that, first of all, it it was difficult for you to get your visa, but you, you got it, what, like the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you made it out there. What was it like? Yeah, I think interesting um, is the word I use. I actually used that word as I left with the the gift the gift shop. I used the the phrase loosely at the airport. It was several bars of soap, and um, <laughs> and the lady sitting behind the counter. It was just it wasn't a gift shop at all. But she asked me how my time was, and I said interesting, and she just <laughs> cracked up and said, "I'm going to use that again." Um, <laughs> it's yeah. I remember reading about Bioka. One of the I got an early report on the site about this place, and I thought, oh my. Oh my word, I'm never going to get to go there. That sounds incredible. It's like this last Eden. So I'm very, very fortunate to have gone. Um, I, as you say, I, for a long time, there was basically zero chance of anyone without an American passport visiting because of their visa policy. But um, the MO um, from Middle Africa, the guy who organized my Gabon trip and, well, and your Gabon trip, I guess, through Martin Royal, he's really helped open up some of these countries and because i think he's trusted and he has good contacts um he is able to help people get tourist visas who aren't american but it was touch and go whether i'd actually get mine in time and there's a whole catalog of stress attached to that which i i know i told you when i was giving you real-time updates before i left 
really didn't think it was going to happen until until not even the day before, the afternoon before, and I actually had the visa. Um, it's it's an interesting place. So there's a lot of oil and gas money now, which is one of the reasons why I suppose they're so so closed and don't care about tourism. There's a lot of money in the country, but um, there's not a there's not a lot of money among most of the people. So the the money has gone to a few people. I think it's fair to say. Um, there's a lot of forest. It's not it's not very well not a very largely populated country, or does it feels a lot less densely populated, at least on Bioko Island, compared to the mainland. I think there's more people on the mainland and. I'm still not quite sure why the capital is on Bioko and Malabo. I think it's probably because of oil and gas. But we spend our time on, on Bioko where the mammals are supposedly more plentiful. Um, no one has really been there since COVID. It was They only opened their doors to visitors months ago. So we were the first group of nature people I could find, mammal watchers for sure, to have visited since, since COVID. So it was a real journey into the unknown. In that there had been stories about a lot of poaching and some of the NGOs that do reports on the bushmeat trade had had horrific stories of the amount of primates going through the markets in Malibu. Um, so we were we were nervous about, about the situation, what we'd see. Um, and we, we spent mo- most of the time at the area that Curtis Hart, who sent through fantastic reports, from months spent working there, volunteering, mm-hmm. um, the biodiversity, um, the Bioko Biodiversity Partnership Program, BBPP, an NGO who did a lot of work there looking after, trying to look after the forest and the animals. Um, we spent most of their time at a camp next to their kind of main main camp uh, on the southern beaches. That required a boat. It required difficult to get permits to visit. Um and when we got there, we found um, what did we find? I was I was pleasantly surprised that there was so much stuff around, and that we heard monkeys quite often. There were hyraxes calling everywhere. There were turtles, big green turtles coming up on the beach to lay eggs every night, almost falling over them sometimes. Um, so that was very positive. Uh, less positive, though, was the fact that the pri- the diurnal animals, the primates in particular, were all very, very wary. Um, as soon as they, any of the species caught a glimpse of us, there'd be alarm calls and they'd, they'd disappear. So that was, I mean, I, you know, one imagines they're being hunted. There were shotgun cartridges even around the main camp and the trail. So it's um, people are hunting there. But whether it's large scale or just, sort of small scale hunting i wouldn't like to say as i said there was plenty of stuff around it was just hard to see so for me it was a pleasant surprise um some of the others on the group i think were, were, were disappointed that they didn't get good pictures and it was so hard to view things right um the main the, the flagship species there i guess for a lot of people were the drill or the drills um Bioko is almost the only place now where you can see them in the wild it seems there were fewer of those than we'd expected. Um, again, very wary, but we did hear them more than we saw them. Um, we split into two groups, eight of us, and we walked the trails in the forest, the couple of trails that were still open. But we immediately realized this was hopeless. Uh, although we need a big group to travel to Bioko for financial, just to make it affordable, it's very, very hard to see things um, with other people. Uh, 
So although we'd heard drills on those walks and heard primates, we saw almost nothing. And so the first night we were there is people were feeling, I was feeling a bit despondent. I think other people were, you know, we're never going to see anything. Everything's too scared. What will we do? Um, but as so often happens the next day, we, we, we found new strategies and we decided we'd split up uh, into smaller groups, even on our own. And we were quite confined to where we could, we could travel. They didn't want us walking off in the jungle on our own. Mm-hmm. There were some trails along the beach that were safe and people started doing their own thing. And we started seeing drills. I think on that first day, just about everyone got a glimpse uh, of a drill. Mm-hmm. And what we did find as well was they were they were on the beach. They were hunting turtles' eggs or digging up turtles' eggs. Um, there were tracks all over the place of multiple families. The turtles' nests where they lay eggs are quite obvious, big lumps in the sand with with tracks like tractor tractor tires going up and down. And the the drills were were digging up those and eating the eggs. And so the beach was the place really to see them. They were also very close to our camp. Um, Cheryl Antonucci, who you might remember, well, you, you know, I know from the podcast, was one of the first people to see one. And she she kind of gave up on the walk in the trails with other people and just walked 100 metres from camp and sat on a, an empty riverbed for an hour and two drills emerged and she got, you know, she, she saw them. Wow. So they were there. It was It was really how to see them that was a challenge. And I think on your own, sitting still, uh, staking out some of these turtle nests they were raiding was a way to go. Um, but views most people only had poor poor to disappointing views including myself one person on the trip got some really long video of a big group of animals but he spent he went up the beach and spent a whole day sort of hiding on a river where we we knew they were active and and got some great footage uh, for me it was well I could do that but I could try and see an Ogilvy's dike or I could look for pygmy squirrel which Martin Royal had seen so I I was greedy and trying to see other things, but as a result, I didn't see that. I thought I'd bump into more drills, but I didn't. So that was a disappointment. Right. Um, and then the rest of the time, we we were there for four days on this wonderful deserted forest, an empty beach. And then we walked back, uh, four or five hour walk to a vehicle, went into the mountains to a place called Mocha, up at a thousand meters where... I think it has the world's highest per capita number of zebra crossings. It was incredible, this little town. (laughs) I didn't see a single pedestrian. I think we saw about two other vehicles the whole time we were there, but there was a zebra crossing every 20 metres. So whether someone in the government has a relative who owns a zebra crossing company, one can only speculate. But that was amusing. But the Villa Gallagher's there, which, um, again, Curtis had reported that was the the aim, and a needle-clawed Gallagher. So that was nice. And then the last, the last, bit of the trip was a place called Pico Basile, um, which is what must be one of the highest mountains in in West Africa, if not Central Africa. It's like 3,000 meters or more. Um, a difficult place to visit because there's a military base on top. So there in particular, you need to apply days in advance to get a permit. Um, and the monkey that we wanted to see there was Prusa's Gwenon, which is, a, it looks a bit like a blue monkey really, but it's again, a critically endangered, I think one of the hardest monkeys to see in Central Africa. Um, and Curtis Hart had missed that one when he was on Bioko. And he'd been walking the trails on Pico Basile. And I think they said the guide had seen one and one other person, but he'd missed it. So we were, all of our group was of the expectation it's going to be very hard to see. And um, the guides there, they took, the first day we went up there, they took people on the trails, they're dense trails through thick forest. And there's not much of a chance to see the canopy. And, 
some some people saw a red-eared monkey. We all heard people shooting. Um, although it's a well should be a well-protected national park, there were people with guns walking up and down the road. Oh. Um, there's no apparent attempt to hide that. Um, and so we figured out oh, the monkeys aren't here, they're gone. But Martin Royal, who you know has so much experience with this, said the road reminded him of some of the places in China where they look for for monkeys. And he thought, I'm just gonna walk along the road. And he, of course, saw Bruce's Gwenon much to the rest of us, rest, the rest of the, the dismay of the rest of us. And I must admit, I, I was tempted to go with him, but we'd asked the two guides and they conferred and they said, no, no, definitely the trails are the way to do it, um, not the road. But Martin saw two groups, one very distantly and a couple running across the road. So that is the way to see them, I think. So I went back, I had a permit for the next day as well, because mm -hmm. I'd counted on this would require a bit of work and i got some actual decent pictures i saw multiple bruce's gwenons um some from the very summit in sort of low shrubland and then a a family feeding on this flowering trees uh, fairly close and they weren't one of them saw me and was giving alarm calls but the rest of them weren't that worried so interesting that there's still plenty of them around but maybe it's the behavior that's changed more than the numbers of them that make them hard to see but i want to thank martin again it was his birthday too so he got a process went on for his birthday for figuring out the right way to see these things once again you know there's a there's a place in the strategy to see everything i believe right. uh we just don't know what they are so often so wow. yeah i'm very glad to have gone it was a an interesting trip and a really great group of people with us um everyone got along people were, were just very supportive of each other and it was fun so yeah it was a good trip right well, excellent. That sounds great. You obviously saw some incredibly rare, rare mammals and uh, had a, a good time and added a new country to your list as well. So, exactly. Yeah. When I thought I'd never get to visit. So yeah. I'm lucky. I know. Well, I look forward to reading up the trip report. Thanks, Charles. All right. Well, moving on to the second part of the podcast today, what we're going to do is discuss a little about how we actually plan our mammal watching trips so of course the very first port of call for any mammal watcher is going to be the mammalwatching.com website um, but let's say you've crawled through those uh, reports for a country um, what do you do next how do you actually decide okay what species might i find um, where might those species be and you know what are the best chances of actually finding a species in one location versus another. So today we have Venkat Sankar back on the podcast. As you will know, we interviewed Venkat and his father uh, a little while back. And Venkat is over here to talk us through what he, he does because he is well known in the mammal watching community for going off to places and seeing bucket loads of rodents and bats etc. So Venkat, welcome to the podcast again. Yeah, thanks so much, Charles and John. Really happy to be back on the podcast. Always thanks, Venkat. It's always good to see you. Yeah. So, okay, Venkat, what, how about it? What, what, what do you do when you, so I know you recently went to Colombia mm -hmm. and you saw some fantastic creatures. You, you saw four or five mountain tapirs, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so that, that sounded marvelous, um, as well as uh, bears, etc. So walk us through it. You decided to go to Colombia. What steps did you take to then set up your trip in a way that would maximize your mammal watching sightings? 
Yeah, yeah. So I think with the with the case of the Columbia trip, um, at the beginning, you know, I'd been to Columbia in 2020 on a group trip with, with John and several others from this site. And that was primarily focused on the lowlands. But one of the, um, I always kind of keep a running list of places that I want to go to. And one place that immediately registered as a place in South America I'd love to visit is the Andes, because I'd never seen spectacled bears and mountain tapers. And there's also a variety of other rarer species, like, you know, a variety of porcupines, oncias, pacarana, many of these just near mythical mammals. And um, because very few people had searched for these species before in the Columbian Andes, there's only one report, I think, um, from earlier last, from last year. Um, I thought this would be a great place to visit. And, you know, for some of these destinations where a lot of mammal watchers visit, I think mammalwatching.com is kind of the perfect first place to get an idea of what species to look for and also where to go. But I think in the case of this trip, um, going to the Columbian Andes, which is a relatively undervisited location, um, it was sort of a case of starting from square one. Uh, one thing that made it very easy was that I'd been to Columbia before and I knew uh, I, I knew Rob Smith, the guide there, and immediately I could send him kind of a first a first pass list of kind of the larger, more charismatic species um, that I could kind of build the trip around. For example, the spectacled bear, the mountain taper, some of the porcupines, and so on. And I think to some degree, once we kind of communicated those species, we established a set of sites that would be that would give us the best chances to see the larger targets. Um, and then once I had settled on those, it was a case of figuring out a lot of the smaller mammals that I want to see, because I think more so than many other mammal watchers, I'm really enthusiastic about seeing a lot of these kind of rare endemic bats and rodents. And there's just a huge diversity of those in Colombia. So with the small mammals, the taxonomy is always changing. And in many cases, the IUCN and even some of the, the books that you that a lot of mammal watchers refer to, those are often around five years behind where the current taxonomic understanding is. And one way to get around that is by using a checklist that's actually on the site, the American Society of Mammalogists checklist. That's updated every few months or so. So it has a much more current understanding of the current of the taxonomy. It includes a lot of recent splits that have been proposed in the scientific literature. And it's really nice because you don't need to go digging through that yourself. Um, this is all compiled in kind of a centralized place. And generally what I do there is I'll kind of look through that list and figure out if there's any kind of standout smaller mammals that I want to see. Um, for me in Colombia, one of those was the Olaya rat that I actually saw, amazingly. So it's um, the Olaya rat, thank you. Yeah, Because yeah. I've been calling it the Olala rat. <laughs> I think it's a much better name, personally. Now I know how to pronounce it. Thank you, Rekha. <laughs> I'd never heard of it until I saw your report. Now I really want to see it. So. Yeah, Olala rat, absolutely yeah. fantastic. <laughs> That's how it's spelled. <laughs> it's a really Sorry. cool species. Yeah, no. So, so anyway... Um, the, the checklist is really nice because in addition to kind of having the species that I already kind of knew about as things that I'd really want to see, I also get to find a bunch of these like poorly known mammals that nobody's ever seen before or that may have just been recently split off that are quite distinctive and really cool. And then once I kind of establish a set of targets off of there, it'll often be a really long list. Um, I can then go in and kind of circle back to the places that I'm visiting and see which ones occur over there. And then also I can, if I want to, if I have time on my hands, which actually wasn't so much the case on this trip, but for example, in my Kenya trip uh, a year ago, um, it was, I can go in and basically dig through the scientific literature and see, okay, is there a cave at this place that has some bats that I wanna see? Is there, can I find like rodent trapping data that tells me what rodents have been found here? Because these sorts of things are just, or, or misnetting data, because both of these can be like infinitely useful for 
kind of narrowing down the set of species you're likely to encounter, as in like what's most abundant, which really helps a lot when you're preparing for what you might see. And also after you photograph stuff, when you come back from the trip, figuring out what you actually saw. So you use the American Society of Mimologists list to figure out what species are in the country. Yeah. yeah. Right. Does mm-hmm. it does it break it down by region or just by just by country? Generally, it's just by country. Just by country. Yeah. So then you then dip into the scientific literature mm-hmm. and start figuring out, okay, where are those individual species found um, in, in those areas? And then use that to, to, to choose your target locations. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like right. in the case of some trips, um, I'll try to define like a top 20, 10 or 20 species that I want to see. Mm-hmm. And then use those to pick the target locations, and then the rest of the targets kind of just fall in from there. John, do you use a straight same strategy, or do you? Because I know that um, at least on some of your trips, you use iNaturalist to figure out what has been seen in the area. I do. I mean, sometimes in the US, especially. Um, I mean, broadly, I follow the same logic as Venkat, and I'll have a set of, I suppose you might call them anchor species that I yeah, really want exactly. to see in you. Okay, so these are the I have to see these. Let's base a trip around trying to see all these, and then seeing what else is in the park and maybe what's on route and what's only a slight yep. detour, trying to figure it out. But um, the smaller mammals, I, you know, Venka, you make it sound very easy, but it's for most people, or for me at least, it's very difficult to sort of see a list of two hundred. No, I mean rats and work out what they are and <laughs> keep it in my head. And but I, I actually think you 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 did that extraordinarily well. I mean, um, I'll. I'll be honest with the rodents. It takes a huge amount of work with the bats and rodents. Um, And as as I said, sometimes I can put in that effort. Sometimes I don't. And it'll just be a focus. It'll just be a factor of like, okay, I visited these locations for the anchor species and I saw many bats and rodents. And then I try to ID them after the trip. But uh, like you though, I think INAD is great if you don't want to be digging through papers. And then I think even just, you know, using good distribution maps, if you can find them, um, some of the IUCN maps are pretty good, for example, too. That also helps a lot. Yeah. And do you get, I'm interested about you finding caves for certain bats and things. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you find a lot in scientific literature, that that kind of detail on locations? Pretty regularly, but I think it depends a lot uh, by the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the countries that have um, a lot of bat researchers working in them or have a long history of bat research generally have much better data, as do countries that have a lot of caves, unsurprisingly. Um, But in the case of Colombia, for example, um, the bats, I think there's still a lot of work yet to be done on the bats, and there actually aren't very very many caves. So on that trip, I didn't have a whole lot of luck finding caves. But on the other hand, like in Kenya and Mexico and Costa Rica, it's a different story. Mm, Interesting. Mm. How do you work it so that you have a reasonable idea of how to identify the fairly rare rodent and bat species mm-hmm. that you're hoping to see, right? So, I mean, many of these things, yep. Yep. They're, they're not that many pictures of them. They may be sort of dead museum specimens, but yeah. certainly yeah. I find it almost impossible to actually look at a museum specimen and translate that into what the live animal will look like. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what techniques do you use to do that? I mean, it, it's definitely difficult, but I think there are a few there are a few ways I can I can get it to work. Um, 
I will say still, though, that there are some photos and sightings that I end up with that I just still have no idea what I saw. But um, I guess as a start, uh, one, one way to go about it is to, I think a number of countries in Central and South America now, maybe in other places as well, um, they have pretty good up-to-date like identification keys for the bats and rodents. There's a great one for both groups, actually, for Costa Rica, for example. Um, and the keys help a lot because I think a lot of those are actually not just based on museum specimens. A lot of them are actually updated with data from like live animals that the researcher who wrote the key has actually worked with. Um, so that's one thing that helps. And I think, um, you know, from photos, some of these things can be tough because some of these keys will say, you know, the hair has like a dark base and a pale top or like the tooth looks like this or something like that. So for those cases, you know, you just have to just leave it. Or sometimes you can even email an expert, like the person who wrote the key or uh, Fiona Reed in, in Central America, Central and South America, for example, and see if they know, see if they've kind of come upon any, any tips that may not be included in the guide um, for identifying these species. Because I think I often find that people who work with bats and rodents a lot, um, thanks to their experience, they have some, some clues for identifying species that you actually don't find in the field guides. But um, they know to be fairly accurate in the field. And sometimes they tell you these and say from the photo, okay, I see this and yeah. this is what I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. John, do you have any particular methods where if you go into an area where you know that there are several species which could look fairly similar, um, do you, what, what, how do you do that in advance to actually figure out what they might be? Yeah, I mean, I, I should do that more. I don't, I'm often not very well prepared. I often sort of kick myself and think when I'm there, oh, if only I'd looked at this when I get back to the, you know, you see something at night yeah. and you get pictures or you get a partial view and you think, oh, it's maybe this. And then you read the field guide. Oh, I should have looked at the end of the yeah. tail. Damn. Yeah. Um, so I could, I could be, I could be a lot more thorough about this. Um, there's certain things I guess that we all do, you know, quickly get a sense of the tail length relative yep, to the yep. body mm -hmm. but i also know from pictures i've taken i'm completely hopeless at estimating size yeah, yeah. I, i'm very confident something's 20 centimeters long and, <laughs> you know, it could only have been 10 when i get back when i realized yeah. what it was mm -hmm. so um i often just focus on getting pictures and hope that i'll have enough to figure it out when i get back yep. if i had more time and was better prepared i would i would revise more thoroughly um mm -hmm. yeah as many times i wish i'd done yeah that. Mm. one of the things i do with the uh with the larger species so mm -hmm. for instance dikers um mm -hmm. i will just trawl the internet um scientific papers etc to try and get as many photographs as i can yeah yeah and because the problem with some of the dikers for instance is that they will cross the road in front of you you're not going to get that photograph right you need to make those instantaneous decisions mm -hmm. and the only way that you can sort of safely make an identification is knowing in advance what to look for. Yeah. Whether you're looking at this like dorsal color on the tail, yep, exactly, or the the belly, or how far this sort of white extends down the leg, etc. Yep. And and I will do that, and I'll test myself, and I'll revise, and I'll just flick through as many photos as I can find if it's a species you know that's been relatively well mm -hmm. photographed, and and sort of have it in my mind so at least i've got some sort of some sort of idea of what it is that i'm looking for it yeah. doesn't always work of course sometimes the sighting is just not good enough and in which case you just have yep. to stay you know have to come back another day but um yep. yeah that's what i do yeah i think a couple of things i can add with the smaller species in particular 
Um, the first is survey data can go a long way because, you know, um, although you won't be able to get these things to 100%, if you find a survey where you have two very similar species occurring at a particular site, but the survey says that one is 10 times more common than the other, um, and especially if you have a photo, I think on balance of probability, um, with a lot of small mammal sightings, frankly, you're never going to get them to 100% confidence, but if you can get them to the point where this is more likely what it is, you can put a note saying this is probable or something like that mm -hmm. in the trip report um, when you post that. I think another thing that helps a lot is I've gotten into the habit of when I see small mammals, I I like less and less IDing them without photos, especially rodents, because it's just kind of sometimes it's just making things up, I feel like, even for me. Um, but I think one thing that I've gotten into the habit of doing is I really try to take pictures of all these weird details on small mammals I see. Like I try to take kind of focused photos of the ears so I can get the color of the hair on the ears on the legs so I can get the color of the ankles, um, the tail tip in particular to see how much hair is on the tail tip. Because I think it's kind of getting a mosaic of these features to see, you know, yes, I may not have the animal in the hand, but try to get as close to that as possible to see if I can find subtle clues. Because often you can differentiate small mammals in particular based on things like this or the color of the foot, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's so much easier now than even just to few years ago definitely with the huge kind of megapixel sensors on cameras you, you yeah. can even in low light get, get these close-up pictures you can crop in on yeah. so yeah photos so, yeah. for basically small small mammals photos are you know essential that's yeah. you know, that's it you know you you without a photo you're almost like operating blind yeah yeah, yeah. okay so you have planned a trip around the um American site of mammalogist literature around the literature that you find generally on, 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 on the internet. Uh, you've been on the trip, you've seen some amazing things, you've taken some great pictures, et cetera. And always, always is going to be a number of species which in the field you could not identify. Um, and you have maybe an idea, or at least, you know, you, know, you can perhaps put them a family or perhaps even to genus. So what steps do you take when you get home to try and make a definitive identification of those species? So I think um, in terms of, I think in the field, generally what I try to do is um, right after I see an animal, if I get photos, that's perfect. Um, say I don't get photos, I'll try to jot down kind of detailed notes of salient features of the animal that I saw. Um, and I'll do this without really looking at an identification key or anything like that. So I don't bias myself. Mm. Um, and then, um, I find that if I, if I've done good pre-trip research, I, as you say, I should be able to get something to family. Often I find that I can get things to genus relatively easily. There are some mammal families where that's really difficult. Um, like many of like the murids or chryseated mm. rodents or uh, vespertilionid bats where I just see something. I'm like, I don't know what that is. But um, at other times, um, I find that I can often get, get things to genus that are at least reasonably distinctive genera of small mammals in particular. Um, and then when I'm back home, I think the it's kind of funny because for me, the process of identifying these things is somewhat similar to the process of figuring out what I'm likely to see at a site, because I'll kind of go back to the same sources. Um, although this time, instead of looking more with an eye of what I'll, what I'm likely to see where, it's more kind of, okay, now that I've seen this species, um, let me look through kind of 
um, identification keys or other literature, and then see what features I can pick out from here and try to kind of um, relate that to a particular species that's listed. Um, but I think the identification, um, I guess for me, I, I use field guides if there's one available, but I typically find myself referring most often to um, either published literature on like rodents and bats in the case of small mammals, or um, yeah, I, I think publications are really what I turn to for, for identification. Right. What about you, John? Do you have a similar way of dealing with it? I, f I find publications that text, I, I find it very, very subjective in, in how to interpret it. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't feel yeah. confident in my interpretations. You know, often they'll they'll say, you know, this has got longer guard heads and yeah. the other one. Or the, the, the things when it's relative and it's very difficult to know whether what you're looking at. So I, I'll 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 read the texts, I'll read the papers if I can find them. Um, and then I'll try and find pictures and try and figure yeah. out exactly what these differences look like in practice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then usually I will email. I, I, don't, I don't really trust myself most of the time so i'll email venkat for example <laughs> uh, or fiona reed or um or anyone else who might yep. be willing to, to to um to give me a a verdict one way or the other uh, one thing of course about many scientists especially especially the older school ones is they just won't stick their yeah, neck they, out and it's yeah you, you might as well ask them to predict what's going to be black or red on the roulette table as to <laughs> whether they'll identify a mammal from a picture yeah. and i think the younger ones and people like fiona who yeah. is also very young but she's <laughs> she, she's very happy to sort of she sees them in a different way but some of these guys it feels like the only they'll only recognize her or has a, um hazard an id when they've got the thing cut open and they're looking at the skull yeah so that's yeah. frustrating so then you have to kind of take it in trying to read between the lines as to what they're saying so it's yeah. there's this whole balance of evidence thing and you know i tried there's often something i want it to be and i i i, I realize i'm <laughs> biasing everything but i can't help myself um one thing i've been doing as well which is very useful which is not probably not something everyone can do is i submit nearly all of my pictures now to the american society of mammalogists they have a um a photographic database and they work through my pictures and they're, they're very very thorough and so they go off and check my photos of anything they're not sure about with experts. And I've yeah. lost a few a few species in the process in recent months of, of things I I thought I'd seen and wanted to see, but apparently didn't. But uh, it's very it's a great form of quality control. So um, you know, if in doubt, you can people can get in touch with me, and I can always pass things on to them. If it's something they want for their database, they will be more than happy, I think, to review it very carefully. That's fascinating. So. Do they do that for you just because of who you are and because they know that you're going to exotic places um, recording lots of species? Or is that something that they have open to pretty much any member of the society? It's not a service they provide. They want the pictures. So they just come to me because they're kind of hooked into my reports and we have a system. But they, they see other people's trip reports when they come in. So when Cheryl had a report recently with some some good I think Bolivian monkeys and they wanted some of those pictures so that they got in touch with me to get in touch with her um but you know they're trying to build a photographic record of every single species in the world apparently I'm now their biggest contributor um <laughs> I don't know how that happened um but I think the the value of photos is another big thing that 
that I kind of missed when I was talking earlier, but I think definitely iNaturalist Illustrated Keys, those are perfect resources for this sort of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think I think it's important to to mention that even within the scientific papers, mm -hmm. uh, people make mistakes. For sure. Right? For sure. And and the bottom line is that within the scientific within the scientific community, you get some people who are very, very diligent and will really sort of like put the time and the effort in and others who are yeah, perhaps a little slapdash mm -hmm. and he'll say, oh, it kind of looks like a such and such. And so I'm going to call it such and such. Mm -hmm. That then enters yeah. into the literature. And once it's in the literature, oh my goodness, it's virtually yeah. impossible to get it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I think I've discussed on the podcast in the past where people had mentioned seeing giant forest hog in the Ngorongoro conservation yep. area. Yep. And they're, have been two published papers saying it was never seen over there it was a misidentification and yet i still see it referred to in in field guides etc um so you know we need to understand that and for me it's really the case of finding who are the people who really take the time and who will look at a picture and really study the picture and say okay Either I know what it is, or I don't know what it is. So let me bring in X, Y, and Z person to to help with that. And um, I, John, I didn't know about that. Uh, the American Society of Mammalogists um, offering that service, at least at least to you. And I think that's something that could be could be great. It could be an excellent way for people within our hobby to be able to identify what we're seeing, but also for the scientific community to get a better idea of what's out there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For small mammals, um, the best people to talk to, I find, are people who've actually done work in that particular reserve, who've yep. mm -hmm. trapped there, um, because they've got they they have straight away a sense of what's common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like yeah. I, you know, if someone sends a report somewhere I've been and there's there's things and it's like, well, I I don't think that is. I'm not that I'm an expert in that animal, but I caught things there and mm -hmm. I didn't catch any of those, and it looks like this and. So that that really helps that that local experience. It helps people, I think, to 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 make to be willing to make to make judgments um, and to make more accurate ones. Yeah, and, and yeah, at least definitely. say, you know, someone completely off base or not. You know, at, yeah. at yep. least yep. Know, from, yep. from the start. Yeah, yeah. Like for example, in Colombia, that that was one thing that helped me a lot and actually helped me ID many of the things that I saw. Um, Rob actually connected me with a local biologist who studied oh, at a awesome. university right next to the reserve that I visited who had actually worked there before. And sometimes I'd show him a photo and say, is it this? And he'd say, no, totally off the mark, different genus. And then we could figure it out. But yeah. Nice. That's exactly the person you need. Yep, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Great. Well, Venkat, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this topic. It was something that actually Amber, uh, John's wife, had brought up on one of the recent podcasts and you know just the, the amount of time that john will put in when he arrives back in from from a trip in actually sort of figuring out <laughs> what he's seen and, and all the rest so um yeah it's been absolutely fascinating figuring out or learning from you how you actually go about a finding where to go and b finding what might be there and c making sure that what should have been there was actually there and that correlates with what you've seen so that's great. Thank you so much for coming on again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, Venkat. You have you you realize, of course, you do have this reputation now as a master, <laughs> the master planner and the master identifier. So thank you for sharing 
some of your tips. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, before just before this started recording, I was busy staring at my pictures of Galagos in um, Equatorial <laughs> Guinea, trying to figure out whether I saw one or two species, and it was driving me crazy. So this has been a slight break from that, but I'm going to go straight back to it and keep going. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. There's a bottle of whiskey over there that you can also use to help you out. <laughs> that would help, yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast.